All right. Let me push this button. Says I got it. All right. My name's Ed Posey. I am a real alcoholic. Uh, wow. Josh, you have a better memory than me because I couldn't remember whether I spoke before or not. Uh, that just happens if you stay sober a long time. You lose something. It's not that important. It's called your mind. You know, so, uh, you know, I don't know really what I'm going to talk about. I know if I was telling my story, I've got a script that simply asked me to tell you in a general way what I was like and what happened and more specifically what I'm like today. Uh, and my story will bounce around a little bit because I'm just one of those folks that never was much discipline in my life. And, I, and I'm very grateful for the simplicity of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because if it was complicated, I don't believe I can continue to do this. Uh, I was having a conversation with a guy today and trying, no, it was a young lady that just got out of a, a detox facility, excuse me, and, and I told her I had this meeting to go. And I said, you know, the simplicity of this thing is I'm just honoring the deal I made with God over 28 years ago that, you know, I would try to help those that are still suffering. You know, and I would try to carry a simple message of recovery and hope to those. And as a result of that, uh, I found a way of living that's far better than anything I'd ever come up with before. And it's allowed me to live life. And people say on life's terms, but on God's terms, because I've had as many bad things happen to me in sobriety as I've had good things in sobriety. But uh, I've been given a new life and an opportunity to live an entirely different way and look at the world a different way and to uh, hopefully added something, you know, prior to me getting sober, it was just about what I could get out of the world and what I could use people for. And, uh, uh, and that didn't solve my problem. Let me digress a little bit. Uh, give you a little background. Uh, there's no reason I picked up the first drink other than just out of curiosity. Uh, and just want to be cool. I was a kid. I'm the only alcoholic in my immediate family. In uh, my family for years put up with me just thinking that I would grow up. I would do something different. I'd assert my willpower, make up my mind just to kind of quit this stuff and just get on with my life. Uh, I was very ignorant about what alcoholism was. I had some preconceived conceptions and idea what AA was. And one of them was I thought it was a bunch of old farts that sat around, drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. Now, if you look at me, I'm getting to be one of them old farts and I do drink coffee and I do smoke cigarettes, but I come to find out that that's not what Alcoholics Anonymous was. And I'm, I'm blessed in that sense. I, I'm, I have one sobriety day. Uh, and I mean, that doesn't make me special. It just means I was a last gasper. Uh, I had tried everything on God's green earth to uh, abstain and, and I'd failed miserably at it. And like I said, uh, uh, well, let me digress a little bit. I, I came to age probably in the 60s. And if anybody remembers what the 60s were like, that was an exciting time. There was a lot of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and do whatever the hell you wanted to do. Uh, I guess, you know, growing up, uh, looking back at my life, like I said, I was a only boy in the family, and I was held at a different standard than I was my sisters. In other words, I was allowed to get away with a lot more. You would call it being spoiled today. And uh, and looking back in my life, I realized that I was a very self-sufficient person. When I look back at this, I mean, I had convinced my dad at one time to buy me a motorcycle. I didn't even know how to ride a motorcycle. 
He drove across town in Dallas, Texas, bought this motorcycle, and he headed back home. And by the time I got home, I knew how to ride a motorcycle. And, and my whole life goes that way when, you, when I look back at it. I mean, I taught myself how to ski, uh, taught myself how to, God, I can't remember what else, but I never really was one to ask for help. I mean, I, you know, I had a pretty good size ego and some pride early on, and I don't know where that comes from. I also had a malady early on that there was always something else needed in my life. I mean, I was always rearranging and uh, I, I think the clinical term people would call it today would had a tension deficit disorder or whatever. I don't know if that's true or false. It's irrelevant to me. It's who I am. I still am that way today. Uh, and uh, that's just who I am. But, you know, early on in life, things were just basically normal. Like I said, my first drink was just to be cool. Uh, my parents were social drinkers and uh, they'd play bridge and I'd sneak off in the kitchen and want to be feel like a grown up. And I remember the first time I tried any alcohol, all that stuff was absolutely terrible. But in elementary school, I was probably one of the hip slickest and coolest kids in there. I was a year above other people in the school. I was, you know, an athlete and all these other things and whatever, you know. Uh, but I remember one year that, uh, they had transferred some students in. This is probably sixth grade or whatever. And I was very shy. And but, you know, I had been attracted to women at this time, but I sure as hell didn't know what to do or say to any of them, you know. But and this young lady invited me to a party. And uh I went. It was a school night. And uh there was older people there drinking, and I went in. I was uncomfortable. I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know what to do, but the, I was attracted to this girl and I started drinking. This is the first time I felt the effects of alcohol. And I remember vaguely just all of a sudden feeling at perfect ease and comfort and like this was it. But what I remembered after that was coming to in a field and a car with these guys that I did not know. And I was scared. I didn't know where I was, didn't know who these people were, and I didn't know how to get home, and I just knew I needed to be home. Now, here's the crazy part about it is I made it home that night and, and went upstairs and went to bed, and the next morning when I woke up, I didn't remember anything about the fear of being in that car or what had happened, but I remember thinking that was the greatest thing that ever happened. Now, I don't know. That was 50-odd years ago. 50 something years ago. And if you think about that, there's a lot of things that's happened to me in my life that I don't remember that were really great, but why would I have that memory so clear to Doug? You know, I, at that time, was alcohol gonna be a problem for me? Probably not, but I'd found something that worked for me and I had a lot of fun doing. And so, you know, I, I would drink during the week. I've gone to school drunk, junior high school and stuff because we could order liquor uh, from a convenience store or whatever, a liquor store, they deliver it. I guess what I'm trying to say is I never drank normal because on Friday nights or the guys would come over to my house and we'd order a fifth of rum or whatever. And uh, it didn't take that much for us to catch a buzz. So there was always something left in the bottle and the next day I'd be drinking. Now, looking back, and I think Bill said it was, Little was I to know that I was going to forge a weapon that would later cut me, you know, to ribbons like a boomerang because I didn't care at that time. It was a lot of fun. The 60s rolled in. 
And I had great plans on what I wanted to do with my education. But looking back, drinking and partying became more important than my education. So uh, I got in a lot of trouble with chemicals in the 70s, and I realized that that wasn't a cool thing. And so for the most part, those things were set aside. But drinking didn't seem to be a problem to me. And so I continued to drink. I, unbeknownst to me, and there was no anybody cautioning me about it or whatever. I can remember the first time I had filled out a job application one time, and it asked a simple question. It said, do you drink? And I thought, yes. And then it said, how much do you drink? And I, and, and I had to lie. And that's kind of strange when you think about it. Drinking's legal. But why did I have to lie? And But it, it didn't get my attention or anything. And why I talk about this is I don't know if anybody in this meeting is new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to get there in a minute. I was very ignorant about what alcoholism was and what AA was. And we're going to get into that in a minute. I'm going to talk a little bit about Alcoholics Anonymous because there's only a few things that I really have a passion for and enjoy talking about. And really, it's not so much about me, but it's the recovery program, the simplicity of it. So this kept going. And, you know, that began to interfere with my uh, desire to finish school and become a mathematician. So I dropped out of high school. People said, well, you'll never finish. And I had a high school diploma at age 16. So now I decided I would, uh, I had a job. I needed a job, didn't have the job, didn't have any money to go drink and party. So, you know, I decided to go to college at night. Now this becomes a real problem for me. So I'm going to college at night. I'm working an eight hour job a day that left very little time for me to uh, drink and have a party. And so I had to make a decision and I realized that that, well, I didn't realize it. I just made a decision that I would quit school, and I did. And so I had a job, and, and, and I would pretty much did what I wanted to, not thinking about what any consequences were, because I really wasn't getting in a lot of trouble. Uh, started driving trucks somewhere in this interim. And uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I have two. I've been married three times, and the first two ladies I married were alcoholics just like me and the first marriage i don't even remember where the hell we got i just don't i'm pretty sure it was a jp at the last minute deal and we decided to do it um, that lady after we went through uh, that marriage and wound up in the divorce shortly thereafter she hung herself in jail fell under a pi the second lady you know when I married her, it was about doing the right thing because the first lady had died, which meant I was going to get custody of my son. And so for about nine months, we decided to do the right thing and, and uh, live up these moral convictions we have. And, 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 it, and it went OK for about nine months. I had a great job, but eventually I made a conscious decision that I couldn't take this anymore. And I went out and I got not wasted and I stayed wasted for a while. Uh, the reason I tell you that is. That didn't really raise any warning flags in my life. I mean, I kind of, you know, I hated that that happened that way, but I could not connect any dots between what happened to them and what was going on with me at that time. Because at this time, I was starting to get my life back in order, so I thought. Uh, job, career, getting married again and whatever. And, and, and I just didn't think there was a problem because I wasn't you know, having shakes, I wasn't having blackouts, I wasn't going into DTs, and I was able to function more nights. So, so 
going forward, uh, things began to get a little more serious. Uh, I wasn't having the fun I was once having, but I kept this thought that somehow or another, I'm going to figure something out. Uh, my folks who I said were, had spoiled me as a young man. Uh, they were also, you'd call great enablers or whatever. They were just doing what they could do, uh, hoping against all hope that some, something would happen to change things. And, and uh, they were very ignorant of alcoholism. Uh, and they would ask me question, you know, why do I keep doing it? And, and I really didn't have an answer one day. And I told my mom, I said, I don't know why. And she said, yes, you do. And so she seemed to think I knew. And even though I did know, so once again, I start coming up with these excuses, which didn't make any sense. You know, uh, so I'm just kind of cruising through life, uh, trying to figure out what I needed to do to make me happy or fix me. And uh, it wasn't working. Uh, it was getting a little darker as I moved down the road. Eventually, what did happen to me, because how I used to judge how well I was doing is by people that I knew that were doing worse than I was doing. I still had a job. My family still liked me at times. Uh, I still had friends. Uh, I'd never gotten a DWI. You know, I was just looking at all these things thinking, well, you know, I'm okay. The first time I ever asked myself whether I might have had a drinking problem, I was in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the chemicals were gone. And, and I was drinking like I'd never drank before in my life. And I came to one morning and I, and I started drinking. I looked out the window and I asked myself, I said, I wonder if this is what an alcoholic is. And I pushed that thought aside and said, no, an alcoholic is the guy sitting underneath the bridge or on a curb with a brown bag. And that's not me. Yeah. So, you know, I managed to keep things together for a little while. And then the wheels came off one more time. And, and since I'd already been down this road numerous times, I had this impending doom, you know, calamity. I knew it wasn't going to end well. But I didn't understand what the problem was. I'm going to digress a little bit and talk about a couple of my geographics I did just to give you an idea what this thing looks like in my life, where it was problematic long before I ever realized it was problematic. I did a geographic more than once, but one of them I did was simply this. I moved to East Texas with this first wife of mine. We had a one-year-old child, and we thought we'd take a year off and just chill out and you know, recuperate, get back to nature and do all this other weird stuff. But what I did as soon as I got there was measured the distance to the nearest liquor store because I lived in a dry county. I did not understand that that was abnormal. Normal people do not do those crazy things. And even to go a little further, when I was driving trucks, I got caught with my pants down one time in Arkansas. I thought, well, I've got a hotel room or whatever. And I thought, well, I'll go to the liquor store. And I went over and said, "Hun, this is a dry county. And I thought, well, that's never going to happen again. So how I fell in love with Missouri one time, I was traveling to Missouri and was laying over up to rent Carthage and stuff. And before I was going to a hotel room, I walked in a little convenience store and I said, let me ask you a question. She, Is this a dry county? And a little lady behind the counter said, hon, there's not a dry county in the whole state of Missouri. And right then and there, I fell in love with Missouri. But I tell you that just because this obsession, which is really the problem, was already deeply implanted in my brain, but it was unbeknownst to me that at some point this had probably crossed the line where it was no longer 
uh, a luxury. This was a necessity, even though on the surface, it still was not causing me that many problems. So now I'm going to play catch up just a little bit. Uh, into 1993 or whatever, uh, I've got a bottle of vodka and a handful of Xanax, and that's how I'd start my day. And I was trying to control this, just manage through the day so I could function somewhat. And when the day was over, I'd finish it off and I'd just pass out. Uh, I was dating a woman there at that time who had been court sentenced to meetings. And I would come in and talk to these people and they would talk about things that just were absolutely, and I'm not beating up this stuff, but it was just absolutely so unattractive, so unappealing that if this is what life looked like sober, I told myself I'll keep my bottle. And that's the honest to God truth because they presented nothing other than a life of misery. So, and that was, and I was already miserable. So what the hell, you know, and I'm not, I'm not beating these people up. It's just what they were shown. And unfortunately, uh, that lady managed to stay sober for a while and then relapsed and nearly died. And, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is if that's what sobriety looked like, then why would I want to get sober? What happened to me is I eventually became unemployable. The family didn't want anything to do with me. I'd had a wreck down in South Texas and a blackout, spent some days in jail, starving to death, uh, you know, Wound up with a bus ticket from Dallas back, I mean, from South Texas back to Dallas. Had $2 my name, walk out of that jail cell, stand there, and I'm looking at a convenience store. I'm starving to death. I buy a quart of beer. That's all I can do. When I make it back to Dallas, uh, the family was done with me. I begged my son for a ride. Day of my father's funeral, I was not allowed in the house. I'm not allowed to attend the funeral. Uh, this went on for about another week or so, and then I wound up, uh, I'd contacted the Dallas Council on Alcoholism six months before, and I'd been honest with them. I'm not a big guy. I take 20 pounds off of me, and I'm, I'm pretty much damn near dead. And, and I honestly believed I would not recover from this and was going to die. My family feared the same way, but they had come to the conclusion that they didn't understand what was wrong with me, that everything they had done uh, had not helped me, so stop helping me because it was just tearing the family up. And, my sister dropped me off in front of a mission in downtown Dallas. And and I, for the first time in my life, I had no excuses to make sense how I got there. Not one of them. And I remember sitting on the curb and leaning up against the building that day and just conceded to myself, this is the way it's going to be and this is the way it's going to end. I can bum enough to get a few quarts of beer if I make it back to the mission, so be it. If I don't, I'm okay with that. And this is where I guess, you know, I believe that the God of my understanding began to work in my life. I wound up in a little shake, rattle, and roll detox facility, and they didn't medically detox, and they nursed me back to health. They fed me vitamins and took my vitals. And then I was able to sit up in a little meeting, and this is where my sponsor was. And some of you may know Cliff Bishop, he passed away. He'd been sitting in this meeting for 11 years, hearing the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Here are the steps we took to suggest the program recovery. Here's what alcoholism is out of the doctor's opinion. We have a 
problem of the body and the mind. And it was the first time anybody said anything that made any sense to me. And at that time, I knew what was wrong with me. And it made sense. And it took me from thinking I was a weak-willed, immoral, bad person to understand I was suffering from an illness. And then he talked about the solution. You know, God as we understood God. And that opened a door for me that had never been open before because I always thought I had to believe or understand as you did. And I was not comfortable with that or couldn't, I couldn't make sense out of this. And he outlined the program as it's written in the big book. And it made sense to me, but it put me in a position I didn't like. Now, Bill didn't like it. I was cornered at last. Ebby talked to him. He had to think about it for two weeks. But when I understood the problem and realized that this was going to be the first time in my life I really didn't have a solution or an answer for that meant I was going to ask somebody to help me. I sheepishly did this, not believing that this thing would work. I did not believe it. Now, here's, here's where it gets where I like to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. Had this been any other thing presented to me, I wouldn't be here today. I would not. If somebody preached at me, if somebody not able to break down the problem, and they come at me intellectually, wouldn't be here. I honestly believe that. So what what happened then? What what about my sponsor that you know that got me to a point I was willing to ask? He had something I wanted, and it wasn't the job, the car, the girl, or the career. He wasn't selling me that. He had a sense about him. He seemed happy and he seemed content, and he seemed sincere in what he was doing. And, you know, the questions were pretty simple. You know, I asked him about honesty, and I sure as hell didn't know much about honesty at that time. He said, I got one question. Do you have an honest desire in your heart and never take another drink? And I said, absolutely. He said, that's all we're going to talk And so I got waffling around there a little bit. You know, uh, I got a couple of weeks under my belt, a few meals in my belly, and, you know, a shower or two, and I started feeling pretty good. My mind starts drifting. And I'm not so sure about this anymore. It starts changing. Bill would call them the worldly clamors. So I wound up having to go live at the Salvation Army. I didn't want to. I just didn't have anywhere else to live. And my mind's already starting to drift. And I'll be damned if this guy wasn't at the Salvation Army doing a meeting there saying the same damn thing. And I walked out of a meeting. We had a group there called the Bridge to Shore Group. And I walked out of that meeting and I stood in a little foyer and I said, okay, God, I'm not stupid. Maybe I'm supposed to do it. I don't care what your step three looks like. I'd done a formal step three, which didn't mean anything until I said this because it meant I was going to sit down and write it in for it. I already knew how to do it. I just wasn't convinced I wanted to do it. And that's what I did. I got busy working the steps. And I don't know. It was, uh, you know, I was encouraged to search, look, extend my hand, look for any opportunity to tell my story and talk to any alcoholic. And there was abundance of them. I used to wonder why I wound up getting sober in that area of town because I didn't even drink down there. Harry Hines in Dallas used to have all the strip bars and clubs and shit down there. They were a little bit low my level. I, I, I like to hang out in the knife and gun bars. But uh, it was an opportunity. We would go down to Salvation Army at night and uh, after day's work and we'd wait on the drunks to come in because I'd read AA literature and what they did back then. 
And what they did back then would they would try to get a drunk to talk to. So they drunks wouldn't talk to him. They want to bum some money. So they figured out if we bring a bottle of whiskey, at least they'll talk to us. We did this crazy shit. Okay. <laughs> and the drunks would be drunk and they'd just be happy. All these guys are from alcoholics. Nobody stayed sober, but Ed. Okay. <laughs> but I began to learn how to carry this message. And, and, and I got to do this by watching my sponsor, you know, he didn't have to tell me where to show up. If he was speaking somewhere, I was there. Our meetings were all book studies and we break them down. And I'm still in a group that does one thing, one thing only. We study the book. And that way, within that meeting confined, we're able to 12 step any newcomer that comes in there. You know, it just works that way. And, and it's kind of hard to stick to that script after a while because my little ego wants to be more entertaining and do something for Ed versus what. Bill wrote in the was it 50s or 60s pamphlet problems of alcoholism. The sole purpose of an AA group is the teaching and practice of 12 steps. That's what he wrote. And that's what he meant. Now, how you do it can be different formats. It's OK. You know, I love it. Uh, one shoe doesn't fit all. But what I learned at that time from my sponsor is Alcoholics Anonymous is this. It's the book title Alcoholics Anonymous. And it starts out with the 12 steps. Then you add the 12 traditions. Now you got 24 principles. And if you get into service, you got 36 principles, which is the concepts. That's AA. The fellowship took its name for AA, which is a different animal. The only membership in AA is, is some half-assed want to maybe thinking about wanting to quit drinking. That's a ticket in the door. But does that actually make you a member of Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm posing that question. And I don't have to answer it for anybody other than myself. In my case, no, it doesn't. It just means I'm a member of a fellowship. But if you actually get in and work the steps, then it says we're joined together and bound together with a program we can join in harmonious action, which will hold us together. You know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. It's total freaking chaos, man. <laughs> Think about it, you know. Uh, and so. I got sober. I thought I was going to sober up the world and God bless everybody does it one time. I think we go out there enthusiastic, build it. My wife and I banded with enthusiasm. Well, how many people do you get sober right off the bat? <laughs> one cat committed suicide. And... But if I didn't have that, then I wouldn't keep moving forward. You know, I've had the privilege of sponsoring people. And my job is to walk with them hand in hand until they get through the steps. And then they quit talking about my day, my way. And they start talking about cats that they had a conversation with or who they're going to go meet today or maybe take through some step work. And then I know they're on a solid foundation. Then we can talk about some of you may have known David. A. I can't ever pronounce his last name. old AA. He was back with Bill and stuff like that. But he used to treat his prospects this way. They'd call me and ask them two questions. How much time do you spend in prayer and meditation a day? And who have you tried to help until they could do those two? He wasn't going to talk to them. Sounds hardcore, doesn't it? But it's simple. You know, we all, including myself, have difficulties. You know, I uh, buried my son 12 years ago who died of this illness. I went through a terrible divorce 12 years ago. The wife had three brain aneurysms. And, you know, she was mentally ill and I got spiritually sick and that marriage did not survive. Uh, so 
how do you walk through these things? You know, the third step said here after the drama of life, God's going to be the director. That's the concept I build on. Uh, and I get to walk through these things and, and live it on God's terms, not my terms. Because uh, I find out every time I make terms, I, I get in trouble. Now, I'll tell you this. God and I have this. At least I've got this deal running with God. So I'll buy a lottery ticket every now and then. And if I don't win, I'll say, okay, God, I'll check with you tomorrow, see if you change your mind. So far, God has not changed his mind. <laughs> but I'll check with him somewhere down the road. I mean, maybe God knows if he gives me too long a leash, I'll disappear. Maybe I'll, well, uh, I, don't, I don't, who knows? I might win the lottery. But what am I getting at? So what is my life like today, basically? What's crazy is my whole life, I wanted to be somebody. I told you the story when I was a kid, I always wanted to be grown up. And, you know, I always looked over at somebody else and thought, God, if I could just like them, I could be cool. Or if I just had that girl, I'd, life would be sweet. Or if I just had that car, that'd be awesome. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But what I found and what I've learned about trying to live by these principles is once I become okay and the spiritual malady solve it, I found I don't want to be you, you know, even with my little quirks and my shortcomings. And, and what's really cool about that is I can allow other people to be themselves too. Is that, I've got an older sister that, oh man, about two minutes of her with me, we're into it pretty good because we're two of the biggest know-it-alls on God's green earth. I mean, we just do. So there's not much conversation. And the relationship I have today is pretty, pretty amazing because we could not spend much time together without butting heads. And today, the trust and the respect is uh, its just incredible what has God has done with, with my outlook and my reactions to it. And also how she's begun to, you know, uh, it set me for who I am. You know, there's a there's a thing about what I've learned a little bit over the years is is giving without expectations. And because when I always do that, and I always did my whole life, I always thought I was a pretty good person, but I always put that little deed I did for you in my back pocket in case I ever needed a favor from you, I could pull it out. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. You know, Not that I said, look, you owe me. It worked like this. If I'd done something for you sometime, help you move, done something else, and then if I needed some help sometime, you didn't help me, it caused a resentment within me because I felt like you owed me. So that really wasn't given. And today I do things without wanting anything from you. And I think that's a pretty cool deal. You know, it took a little while to get there. Uh, and, I, and I realized that that's what my sponsor had. He didn't want anything from me. He just was willing to help me if I wanted some help and willing to do what he asked me to do. And that, is a novel idea because the first person ever planted any seeds in my head about Alcoholics Anonymous was a guy we'd been to the family reunion type deal in East Texas. This is long before I still had a job and family would let me in the house, man. <laughs> you know, weird deal. But uh, we'd been out playing tennis with my kids and his kids and we'd gone back to the house and he was an in-law married into this deal. So I didn't trust him because I knew he didn't drink. I always kept an eye on him. I always kept my guard up. I, mean, I can't let too much out, even though I knew I was a topic of conversation. 
And I sit down in an easy chair after I go and get a drink and sit down in an easy chair. And he sits down in the easy chair and he, and he looks across at me and said, Ed, how are you doing? I said, Saul, I'm just drinking. He said, you know, Ed, I used to drink. I drank up a million dollar business. I've been sober 10 years. You might want to try Alcoholics Anonymous. And that messed me up. I mean, a tear went down my eye. And I, why? I don't know. He didn't want anything. He didn't say another word after that. You know, just moved right on. You know, it was a few years later before, you know, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is why I'll reiterate one more time. I'm so thankful that somebody was able to explain to me what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And I'm going to say it one more time. It is a set of 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts. The fellowship took its name after that. And you will get two different animals, which is fine. You know, you had the theme in whatever the international in Canada, I don't know if it's 80 or whatever, it said anytime anybody reaches out, I want the hand of AA to be there. And for that, I'm responsible. I am honoring that creed today and have been for over 28 years. We spent a lot of our times in wind-up joints in Dallas. It's a little bit different here. It's kind of harder to get in. Um, a lot of different takes on things up here. But, you know, I take the opportunities I'm given to talk to people about this and, and try to simplify it for them. I call it today trying to unconfuse the confused because there's so much misinformation if you look at it. And, and, and you know, you can't blame the outside agencies, the stuff you see on TV. It's just used to say a lot and saying, you know, keep in mind, you're probably the only big book anybody's ever really going to see. Hopefully that makes sense to you. I tend to forget that sometimes. Am I actually, you know, uh, living by the principles? Am I actually, you know, willing to go? If somebody reaches out, am I willing to put my name out there? Am I willing to let people know about this? I mean, you don't have to scream it from the rooftop or anything. There's a guy I'm going to meet with tomorrow uh, who moved here. He's, he's a professional and wanted to get connected. And we'll sit down tomorrow and we'll talk about this. Son. He moved here from Phoenix, Arizona just a few weeks ago. So uh, for that, I'm responsible, you know, uh, and as a result of that, I, I get to have a life. I mean, I've got a young man that why I don't know. I wouldn't have bet two cents on him in the beginning. He got sober probably 19 or 20. And I mean, I used to scream at this guy. I'd sit there and just tell him, you know, I'm not going to argue it. So just shut up, George. I remember one time we, he was just young and just running amok in the world. Right. But he was carrying the message. He was 12 step and he was over preaching, raising hell, whatever the hell. And so there was one day up, after that, one of those talks, and he called me the next day, and I said, George, if I had been in your shoes and you'd talked to me the way you talked to me, I don't think I would have ever called you back. <laughs> the guy's celebrated 20 years. He went from not even having an education to working in the financial industry, and he considers me to be his second dad. Last year, he took me to Vegas. Earlier this year, we went to Yucatan. October, we're going to Vietnam. That shit doesn't happen. You know, uh, and it's just crazy. That's just one of the many things. And of course, we have the heartaches, you know. I mean, when my son passed away, I mean, he knew my story, he knew his mom's story. Uh, he just couldn't quite get there. I mean, he, he understood the first part of step one that he couldn't control his drinking, but he was not convinced there wasn't something he could do about it on his own. And he fixated after South by Southwest in Austin one night, passed out and just fixated his own bomb. And he was just a hair from getting there. Uh, and so that's the tragedy of it. I hate the illness. 
even though I say, you know, it says rarely have you seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed a path. I mean, my sponsor said there's a lot of starters, a few splinters, but there's damn few finishers. And, uh, you know, I guess you know, I was always told the only way to be successful in this thing is just die sober. I mean, I knew Clancy, I knew Smitty, I knew David A. I, there's a lot of old timers I knew, you know, and, and they were success stories. You know, and, and what they did was they continued to make themselves available and stay active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I still have a home group, bunch of youngsters, and I tend to forget what it was like to get sober when you're young. You know, it's kind of hard, but it's kind of refreshing uh, because you get to have a life, you know, and I wouldn't wish that you had to go through what I did before you understood what chronic alcoholism looks like. You know, I believe in uh, 77 after that geographic, I told you had somebody showed up when I got thrown in jail that day. <laughs> if somebody showed up from AA at the jail cell, I believe I would have given this a shot. I had just moved out of town. I just measured the distance to the new liquor store. Two weeks later, I'm in jail. And if somebody had been able to talk about alcoholism and present me the recovery program, there's a good chance I might have picked that up. But what I did do at that time in that jail cell, I said, God, get me out of this and I will try somewhere down the road to help somebody not go through what I went through. You know, it was uh, 14 years later before I got sober. Didn't understand the problem. So I kept trying to apply the wrong solution. Get a different job, move out of town. I don't know, whatever I could come up with, you know, and I'm a pretty smart guy. <laughs> I used to think I was, <laughs> but Here's the deal, what I love about this. And, you know, I mean, a lot of times concern is, you know, is, is AA is still viable today. I am so blessed. And if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I hope you feel the same one. That we've got a simple program. And Dr. Bob simply said, keep this. Simple. And the book says, we have a solution that will answer all your problems. All of them. I've not needed another piece of literature to do that. Now, I've had cancer a few years ago. Yeah, I'm going to a doctor. I'm not going to allow the big book to solve the cancer, okay? <laughs> I found out when you come to Missouri, they like to use knives up here. I've had two operations. So they got up here. I'm like, I'm not seeing you guys for another year. Y'all too knife happy. <laughs> you know? But I joke about that and I cut up about it a lot uh, because I, I insist on enjoying regardless of what the circumstances are. And I have friends from all walks of life and my friendship used to always be contingent upon you know, how you looked, what you had, how you acted, or what circles you traveled in. Uh, when you get to think about some of the people you're connected to, you know, my sponsor held a master's in physics. I know people that are extremely smart, and I know people that have one brain cell left, you know. And uh, and we get to, you know, interact together. I'm going to end this in just a minute, but I'm going to leave you with a joke. Some of you probably heard this old joke. I was going to tell you the third step joke, but oh, what the hell, let's do the third step joke anyway. <laughs> so this is how my third steps always used to be, or my foxhole prayers used to be. Uh, you know, there always was a hook on something. I always wanted something from God, right? So that's when I get serious about praying. Oh, I need the job, I need this, whatever, whatever. So um, there was this elderly lady whose husband had died, and she was a, uh, a God-fearing woman, and she had heard that, you know, pets make good company, and so she's lonely. 
So she thinks, well, you know, I'm elderly. I'm a, I'll go get a pet to see if they can help keep me company. And so goes to the pet store and she walks in. They got dogs, cats, and all this other stuff. And she's thinking, well, that's a lot of maintenance. And I'm, I'm a little too old to have to take a dog out and all this other stuff. And she sees these two parrots. And she thinks, well, they might make good pets. I can teach them to talk and, you know, we can have a little conversation. They're low maintenance. And so she's all excited. And so she buys these two parrots. And so they cover up the cage. She runs home with the cage and puts it on her dining room table and takes the cover off the cage. And the first words out of these birds' mouth is, hi, we're prostitutes. You want to have a good time? She's like, oh, my God. So she spends a little time working with these birds, and, and that's they're just foul mouth. And so she's in town a little later, and she happens to run across her minister, and he sees she's disturbed. And he says, well, I see you're a little concerned. Um, is anything going on? I can help you. I said, God, I'm, you know, I'm just upset. You know, I'd heard their pets were a good company and would help keep you lonely. So I bought these two parrots, but they're the most foul-mouthed creatures on God's green earth, and I just don't know what to do. And he looks at her kind of puzzled. He said, well, that's kind of interesting because I've got a couple of parrots at home, and they're the most wonderful creature. One sits there and recites prayers, and the other takes the rosary. Now the poor lady's really confused. He said, well, listen, I've got an idea. Why don't you get your birds and bring them over to my bird's house? And maybe my bird's going to have a positive effect on it. Well, she's kind of excited, got some hope and whatever, runs home, gets her birds and runs over to his house and sets her cage next to his cage and pulls the cover off her bird's cage. And the first words out of her bird's mouth is, hi, we're prostitutes. You want to have a good time? The first of his bird looks at the second bird and said, you can throw them damn beads away. Our prayers have been answered. So, <laughs> I mean, so our third step says, God do with me as I will. Believe me, it binds itself, take away my difficulties and victory over them. Maybe witness those that help thy power, thy love, thy way of life, may I do thy will always. There's no condition on this thing. And you go above that and it says, if we keep close to him, perform his work well, we provided everything we need. And you go on the preceding page on 62, it says, this is the concept. That hereafter in drama of life, God's going to be our director. And my first job is to carry this message to the alcoholic who still suffers and learn how to practice these principles in all my affairs. And then as it goes on, it says 77 is our real purpose to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people above us. So this is what I've got to say to each and every one of you. For anything you've ever done, God bless you. And I hope to keep AA alive and we'll just keep trudging this road to happy destiny. And thank you for having me. I'm done. <laughs>